The rest of us are going to turn to Matthew 25, um, and the first 13 verses reads like this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some, some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there were, will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, Lord. We pray that you would take these words and enable them to be your words. Amen. Well, um, the way weddings worked in Jesus' day uh, was a little different than the way they work in our day, there was a little bit more recognition that you had this kind of blending of the houses that shows up today. You often kind of have the bride side and the groom side, and I can still never quite remember which is which uh, when you show up to a wedding. Uh, ideally, I'm standing up front, so, you know, I don't have to make that decision. Um, but, but in Jesus' day, what would happen is the whole kind of party would go to the, the groom's house, right? And, and they would all sort of be over at the groom's house, and that's what, we're, what we would think of as the ceremony would happen, the kind of the wedding part of the wedding, right? And then the, the, the bridesmaids, here the virgins, uh, were ten young women uh, who would sort of accompany the, uh, the bride, and, and their job was to go wait close to the bride's house, and then they were supposed to be the welcoming party. So you'd have the, the wedding that would happen, and then everybody would kind of stand up and and process through town. So you'd have this kind of parade that would happen in addition to the wedding. So you might be walking around an, uh, an Israeli, uh, Israelite town in, in the first century, and as you're walking around, like, here comes the parade, and you just kind of have to stop, and everybody's dancing and shaking tambourines and doing their thing, and they're excited to go to the reception, and when they get close to the bride's house, that's where you actually host the party, and the bridesmaids are there welcoming. Right? So this is like the background that Jesus is talking about. It's not just ten random ladies who are hanging out on a street like maybe a groom's going to come by. right? They have a job. They have a purpose. They, they have a, something they're supposed to do. Their waiting is actually really important to this service, to this ceremony, to, to what's about to happen here. And so um, this, this kind of waiting, Jesus starts to use it because in the arc of, of the Gospel of Matthew, we're getting toward the end. Right, So, you know, the, the Gospel of Matthew starts out in the beginning uh, with Jesus' birth and the story of the wise men and, and the movement of Jesus and his family even down into Egypt as they run from Herod, who is trying to kill all the baby boys because of this challenge to his power that has come in this one who is called the King of the Jews. And then moves, like, immediately into, uh, into Jesus' ministry, his baptism, and then where do we start in chapter 5? Jesus comes out hard swinging with the Sermon on the Mount, right? And then the rest of the, the, rest of the, of the gospel, Matthew is sort of 
wrestling with this, but as we get to the end, Matthew 25 is the last chapter of anything that Jesus says or does that's not kind of what we call the passion narrative. Right? So the, the passion narrative is the last week of Jesus' life. So the start of Matthew 26 is the Last Supper. Right? We're in the last 24 hours even of Jesus' life. So this portion, this section of teaching in Matthew 25 is actually the last things that Jesus says to his followers and to his disciples. And what he chooses to say are three probably very familiar parables and teachings. The one is the, bride, the, the ten bridesmaids, not ten bridegrooms, uh, the ten bridesmaids, right? The ten virgins with their oil and their lamps. The second is the parable of the talents, right? This master gives varying amounts of silver to each to three different servants, and they do different things with it, and they're either rewarded or punished for what they do with it, right? And the last is the final judgment, the sheep and the goats, right? If th This is, we quote it all the time. The last thing that Jesus says before he goes to his passion, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you came and you visited me. You did not do it to the least. What you, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. Right? So this is, this is an important part of Jesus' teaching. This is not just kind of stuck in there. It's not just kind of random. It, it, ha it holds a really serious place. And he tells this story about a wedding. He tells this story about a group of bridesmaids who are sent to wait. To wait for the groom. The groom goes to do what grooms do, which is get married. And then that groom is supposed to lead this procession back to the place of consummation and union, back to the party, right? Back to the dancing and the feasting and the drinking and the celebration. And so the bridesmaids are stuck in between this thing where the groom is off doing something that they can't see and don't really know while they wait for the consummation, while they wait for the kind of fullness of the wedding. Do you see what he's saying to his disciples? I'm the groom, and I'm going to be going away, and I'm going to be doing important things. For him, it's going to be being crucified. <laughs> and raised from the dead. And those disciples aren't going to be with him while he does that. They're going to abandon him, and then he's going to be in the tomb, and they can't come with him into death. They have to sit there and wait for him to return. He, he's putting them in this kind of in-between place, this waiting place. And he says, while you're in this waiting place, I need you to stay ready. I need you to stay prepared. This, the fancy word for this, as we kind of talk about it in theology, is parousia. It just means returning, appearing, showing up. Right? And it gets used here as Jesus talks about him going away and then coming back as, a, as the resurrected Christ. But it also gets used for us, the church, as we talk about Jesus going away in the ascension and what is the life of the church. The life of the church is waiting for him to come back. It's like we, we get what happened, we accept what happened, we weren't there, but we believe it. We live by it, we change our life 
according to it, but then we kind of have to figure out, well, what now? How do we live in the in-between? How do we live in the meantime? And I, I love it. It says the bridegroom was delayed. In fact, he was delayed so long that these bridesmaids all just fell asleep. Right? Like, it's not supposed to take that long. But why is this wedding taking so long? Why is this marriage sort of taking so long over at the groom's house? We're sitting here on the side of the road, just ten ladies, you know, with our lamps, waiting for dinner, and all, he's just not coming. So eventually they just fall asleep. And oftentimes it kind of feels like that in the church. Jesus, you said it, and we believe it, and we're sitting here waiting, and we're ready, and even we kind of read the stars and the tea leaves and all the stuff that's happening in the news, and, and we look at it, and we go like, it seems like it's time. <laughs> and it has seemed like it's time for quite some time. And we're waiting. We're just here waiting. This, we've talked about, was the problem in Thessalonica. The church thought, Jesus is coming back soon. And you get into 2 Thessalonians and you find out they thought he was coming back so soon that a group of people in the church just quit their jobs. And they said, the church has some savings, right? The church cares for the poor and the unemployed, right? Well, guess who's unemployed? Me, because I just quit my job, right? So you had a whole group of people in the church who were sitting around and eating and living off of the generosity of the church <laughs> because they were convinced, well, Jesus is coming back. So I'm just going to hang out. I don't have to do anything while I wait. My job is just to wait. And this is where we get Paul's famous line, he who does not work shall not eat. Right? Because there were people who just said, I'm just going to mooch. And Paul has to speak into that. What's really being looked forward to here is, is not just like what are the events of the future, but it's, it's kind of forming and shaping the desire of Christians, which is not just to go to heaven to a nice place. right? We all want to go to nice places, but there are retirement communities in Arizona that can do that for you, and you can golf 365 days a year. And they've got it all figured out. I've seen them. I've been there. It's a magical, wonderful place. Um, you know, the doctor's office and the de everything is right in that little suburban community. You don't even have to leave the gates. You just live in this little perfect paradise. Right? Those places exist in the world if your goal is to just go to someplace nice. That's not what heaven is. <laughs> heaven isn't a nice place. Heaven is union with God and communion with his people. Union with God and communion with his people. Do you know what that means? If you have any part of your life that doesn't fit in union with God, it doesn't get to go to heaven. If you have some part of your life that you hang on to and you kind of keep on the side and you're like, yeah, but God loves me, but maybe... But depending on how attached you are to that part of your life, it might be pretty painful to let it go. That stuff doesn't get to come. <laughs> Why? Because heaven is about God and not about you. And any part of heaven that you make about you is in heaven. 
The stuff of heaven that you make about you is ultimately hell because that's what hell is. It's where we get what we want. When we let ourselves, we let our desires kind of run rampant, some theologians and thinkers have just said, look, eventually if you keep asking for it, God will give it to you. And you'll discover that it wasn't so good. You discover that your desires are not redeemed when they're still yours. What we discover in heaven instead is that if we allow God to shape us, if we allow God to redeem us, if we allow God to do the hard work of binding us to him in his son Jesus, this is why God became a human, so that everything that we are could be bound to everything that he is. And he brings those two things together. Heaven is union with God and communion with his people. Right? And that's way better than any suburban enclosure in the desert. That's way better than any place in Florida that you can retire and just have all your desires met. Right? God knows who you are better than you know who you are. Right? And he knows what we need. And on top of all that, he's love and he's good. <laughs> and he will bring us into that love and good. There's this obviously kind of incredible moment in, in this text. You notice, what are the bridesmaids waiting for? They're waiting for the wedding feast. They're waiting for the reception. So part of the reason they fall asleep, I think, is because they're hungry. Um, <laughs> and probably cranky, as his bridegroom gets later and later and later. And you notice that whenever God like really shows up in scriptures, people eat. It happens on the road to Emmaus. It happens in the desert with the manna and the quail. It happens with Daniel and his friends in Babylon. It happens in Eden, right? Like what's the first sin? The first sin is eating wrong. So what does God do? He invites us to eat well, to eat right. It happens in the Last Supper. And in Revelation, he calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb. But Jesus says, these, five, these ten bridesmaids, these, these five and five, these, these women, these virgins who are all of us, right? Who have been called into this moment. Five of them, it says, were wise. They brought their lamps plus extra oil, Right? They bring their little, you got to think of those little clay lamps with the, with the, the you know, you, you rub it and a genie comes out. That kind of lamp, right? That, that's what we're talking about. You can take the top off and pour more oil in, but there's a little wick down here. Okay, this is like their, their little LED headlamp of the day. They bring the flashlight plus the batteries, right? They've got extras with them. And then you've got five foolish who all they bring is the lamps. And Jesus is making a point. There's kind of a, a, what do you say? It's kind of an allegory here. That they, Yes, they bring themselves, they bring their bodies, and they plop down on the side of the road, and they wait. But they also bring their kind of, their faith with them, that light that they shine. And the question is, how much overflow do you have in your life if you're one of these bridesmaids? Do you show up and say, well, I, I've got the faith and I believe the thing and I can say the words. I got my lamp. That's enough. 
Remember, who is Jesus talking to here in 25? He's talking to his disciples and his friends, the people who have followed him. Okay? So this isn't how we talk to people who are like trying to follow Jesus for the first time. He's trying to bring them along and prepare them for what's about to be a really hard week. Okay? So the words that he says to them, you can't just bring a bare, minimal faith into this kind of week. You got to bring some extra. You got to bring enough, enough to get you through. You can't just bring light for the moment. You need your daily bread, right? You need enough for today. But you're also going to need a little extra beyond that. You need faith, what you believe, plus good works, like James will say, right? I'll show you my faith and the good things I do. Faith plus compassion. Faith plus a little effort. And what we discover is that as we choose God, we discover God has already chosen us. <laughs> right? He's already gone out ahead of us. But we've got to respond in order to discover that. The bridesmaids are called to accept those things that God has called them to, even when it challenges or destroys their self-will. I'm the kind of person who likes to show up probably unprepared to things. <laughs> Why? Because I'm, I, I, I'm often kind of like, I'm good. I got this handled, right? So I, I, I have a tendency to kind of show up and be like, we're going to be okay. I'm going to be able to make my way through. I can think on my feet, right? I can improvise, all this kind of thing. And I have found many times <laughs> that I'm like a bridesmaid without enough oil, <laughs> It's like, oh, I don't actually have that deep of pockets. <laughs> I don't have that much in reserve as I thought. I'm kind of running on fumes, and here I thought I had a full tank, that kind of thing, right? Jesus says, do not be caught unprepared. Accept that Jesus calls you to things, and some of the things he calls you to are so wonderful and so sacred and so far beyond you but if you don't come ready, you're going to miss it. Yesterday was Veterans Day. Um, the symbol, I know we have, we have some veterans here. Um, and I, do you know the symbol of kind of the red poppy? You guys seen that? Yeah. I, in, when I lived in Kansas City, I went to the World War I Museum. Um, I don't know about you. I don't think about World War I a whole lot. Um, I think about World War II, maybe, uh, but World War I doesn't tend to make it into my consciousness a lot. When you walk into the World War I Museum in Kansas City, it's a, it's a really, it's a pretty incredible museum if you're ever there. When you walk in these doors, the first exhibit, at least when I went, was this big field of red poppies. And it comes from a poem called In Flanders Field. It was written about a battle um, and kind of became a symbol of veterans' service, of the kind of sacrifice that happened. World War I was kind of especially, my understanding, especially gruesome because you sort of had late 1800s kind of uh, military tactics which were met with 20th century military technology. So you had tanks and, you know, poison gas and machine guns and all these things being used for the first time 
in a war in which generals were used to just saying, all right, everybody, charge. <laughs> and so you had masses of human beings running out across fields that would just be getting slaughtered, right? And the, the scale of human loss and sacrifice was unimaginable to people in the 1910s. Right? Go read All Quiet on the Western Front. I, I, I remember trying to pick that up in high school and having to put it down because it was so brutal. And the things that these men and, and I'm sure some women went through in those spaces were unbelievable. That kind of, of sacrifice and loss. And people coming out of World War I thought, you know, this is it. Like, it can't get worse than this. And then, sure enough, 20-ish years later, here goes Europe again into World War II. Right? World War I was just the Great War. And then they, we figured out a way to do it again. Right? And, and you just think of and imagine the, the depth of, of loss and suffering that happened in those places. And that wasn't even the last time. Again, we sort of ended up in wars that were different, but, but equally kind of disconcerting and cruel. And, and so many of our veterans live with that kind of struggle. And you see both the valor and the suffering that comes out of those places. But you get into this, this kind of fatigue of like the worst thing that could ever happen right? Where it's one thing after another of like, it couldn't get worse than that. That's got to be so bad that we're going to figure out a way. That's got to be so bad that, that we're not going to get back into that situation. This conflict is so bad that we're going to find a way to make peace that will finally sort of resolve it all. And I think in the church sometimes we see that and we get into this kind of like second coming fatigue, where stuff keeps getting worse and worse, and we just go, oh, it can't get worse than this. And then sure enough, here it comes, getting worse than that. And then it can't get worse than this. This is the worst war ever. This is the most important election of our lifetime. Jesus couldn't hold off any, like, we just end up in this cycle. And I read a story, a pair, you know, a... Uh, parable like these bridesmaids. And, and I think of the church in this sort of cycle of fatigue over these things. And I'm like, what is it that we're actually being called to? Like, what are we being called to live? Yes, we're being called to live in expectation that Christ is coming again. This is part of what we confess. Our lives are directed toward the kingdom of God. But I don't know, I sometimes just get tired of <laughs> and worn down of thinking I've got to read the signs. And then I read a story like this. And I don't think it's just being able to predict when Jesus is going to come that we're called to. We're called rather to uh, wakefulness to watchfulness, to be a people who don't let our oil run down, 
to be a people who have some faith in reserve. And not just faith that we believe, but faith that we live. Who, are, who have habits and, and activities that keep us fresh and awake and ready to respond to whatever comes our way. Who live with activity that wakes us up rather than putting us to sleep. I mean, sometimes as, as believers, right, we, we tend to think about, okay, I want to go do this thing. Is this thing good or is this thing bad? Or is it neutral? And if it's good or neutral, we just jump in, right? I want to suggest that instead of thinking, is this thing I'm about to do good or bad, what if we thought, does this thing that I'm about to do wake me up to the reality of Jesus or put me to sleep to the reality of Jesus? Does it make me sharper or more dull? Does it make me more aware? Or the, the sort of opposite of this in, in Bible language is, is drunk. <laughs> right? The actual word is sober-mindedness. We don't have anything that dulls our senses, that lets stuff sort of slip by. And I love that word because it's not just about you know, alcohol or drugs or something like that. It's about all the kinds of things that we do to just sort of dull our pain to dull our senses so that things don't feel quite so sharp. And Jesus says, I want you to stay awake. Engage in that activity which wakes you up. Because you notice, when the bridegroom finally comes, what happens? The five bridesmaids who didn't bring extra, any extra oil, they wake up and they trim their lamps and they try to get it going, but the lamps won't start. And here comes the bridegroom. They're, they're, they're about to go into the reception. They're about to go into the marriage. They're about to go into the feast, this thing they've been waiting for. And those five who didn't have what they should have brought with them, they can't go in. And they can't go in. They ask the five wise ones, like, can't you share? Is, this, is it really this big of a deal to share? And, and it's not that they're stingy. It's not that they don't want to share. It's that you can't share your character with someone else. You are who you are. And you're responsible for who you are. And so if you live a life that's asleep, you take that sleepiness with you. And man, I, I wish we could all just live in the overflow of, of each other's virtue and good character. But it's like, no, one day it, you have to make the call. And you're going to be the person who responds and either lives whatever the judgment is. We can't shift our state of virtue onto somebody else after death. But you have been given this life to believe and to trust and to grow and to love in the way of Christ. You've been given this time that you have. All of you appear alive. <laughs> you are awake. And you have time <laughs> to turn and repent and live. Some of you might be asleep, but you're at least alive, right? <laughs> and so here's, here's what I think some of the people Jesus was talking to heard in this. In Greek, the word for oil is eleos, 
Okay? Something like that. Okay? The word for mercy is eleon. They're essentially the same word. To, to have compassion on somebody, to give mercy to somebody in, in Jesus' world was all, exactly parallel with pouring oil on their wounds. Right? So, so when they talked about this, the scholars actually think that the words come from each other, that they're, that they're connected to one another. So when we say, be merciful, what we're actually saying is to kind of pour oil onto, onto a hurting part of your body. So when you think the good Samaritan in the ditch, and, or that he's not the good Samaritan, the, the, the Jewish guy that got jumped in the ditch, and here comes the good Samaritan, and he's going to heal and, and, and pour oil over his wounds, and, and what Jesus' hearers would have heard is he's pouring out mercy on him. Right? And so here's these five bridesmaids, and what is it that they don't have? What is it that they run low on? They run low on mercy and compassion. They, they run low on, on their capacity to care. And I just think here, you know, how often do we offer mercy to people only once we have met all of our own needs and we've got this like overabundance, right? And I think Jesus is saying here, you've got to recognize that you're needy too. And if you required everybody to, to offer you mercy, all the mercy that you need in your life, if you needed that mercy only from people's abundance, you would be in trouble. Do you see what I'm saying? We've got to trust that we are connected to the source of mercy, the source of compassion, the source of that oil, and live with the hope that Jesus' oil and mercy will never run dry. The answer, as we jump into these things, I think for most of us, is not to go to church more. It might be for you, I don't know, but it's probably not. The answer for most of us is that we need to become more merciful, more compassionate. We need to have our hearts broken for the brokenhearted, like Amos, right? I don't need your feasts, and I don't need more sacrifices, and I don't need you to show up and, and pray louder, right? Amos 5 that, that Ching read for us today. What I need is justice. What I need is mercy. What I need, like Michael will say, is humility. I need the kind of life that comes from a broken heart, that recognizes that you can't save yourself, that recognizes that you can't just hang out and wait for the bridegrooms to come and say, hey, you're a nice guy. What about me? Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, stay awake, stay sober-minded for you know neither the day nor the hour. Your life, my life, is unbelievably precious to God. Every aspect of it. 
and he's given it to us to care for, to look after, and to be responsible for. And if we squander that, then we've squandered it. And there's no going back and getting it right. So take care to do those things that matter most today. To do those things, whether it's coming into faith, maybe it is showing up to church more, but almost assuredly, it's leaning more into mercy and compassion and kindness and the love of Christ. Take care to do those things while you have time. Because we do not know when the bridegroom will come. And I pray that each one of us would not be caught unaware. If the step that you need to take today is faith, for the first time to say, Lord, or maybe for the first time in a long time to say, Lord, I, I believe. And there's still parts of me that I don't understand that how I'm going to get them in line, but I want to get to that place. But I encourage you as, as we come to the table and as I hold up the bread and, and we say this is Christ's body broken for you and Christ's blood shed for you, that you would just claim that for yourself, that Lord, that is your body broken for me, that your blood shed for me. And that the only hope that I have is the hope of your cross and your empty tomb. Is the hope of your salvation and your resurrection. If that's you, I encourage you to pray that prayer and then to come and eat, knowing that Christ invites you into his life. If there's something else, some other conviction or place that the Spirit is working on you today, as you come forward to, uh, to receive the bread and the cup, I, I, the, we can leave the front aisles kind of open here. Maybe we can, I can clear off a couple of the kids' toys. Uh, <laughs> if you want to come and kneel here, you're welcome to come and kneel. And I'd love to pray with you or walk with you because this is important stuff. God's mercy is so vast and the union that he calls us into is so good. I just pray we don't miss it.